Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to Ejil, the podcast. I'm Megan Donaldson, and I'm here with my co-host, Surabhi Ranganathan. And today, the second episode in our series, Reckonings with Europe, Past and Present, continues our initial focus on material objects. We'll be talking about those artifacts that lawyers discuss in the language of cultural heritage or cultural property, and many cultures refer to simply as loot. We're talking about objects brought to Europe from other parts of the world, by soldiers, officials, missionaries, and scholars, now scattered in the possession of families, companies, churches, and states. Many adorn European museums and public buildings and even European crowns. In recent years, calls for return of these objects, particularly from public museums, have grown in volume and urgency. Today, we think with and about these calls. What do they represent? How does international law respond to them? Who resists return and why? And what might return mean? And we will go into all this and more with three amazing guests. Evelyn Kempfens is based at the University of Leiden, where she is researching the topic of cultural heritage law as part of the Museum Collections and Society Research Group. She has served as a lawyer at the Dutch Restitutions Committee for Nazi Looted Art and is a member of the Ethics Committee of the Dutch Museum Association. Welcome, Evelyn. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shurabi and Megan, for having me here. I'm very pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. Chika Okeke Agulu is Professor of African and African Diaspora Art at the Departments of African American Studies and Art and Archaeology at Princeton University. He specializes in indigenous, modern, and contemporary African and African diaspora art history and theory, and has been intensely engaged in campaigns for the return of looted objects. Welcome, Chika. I'm very glad to be here this morning and afternoon, wherever you are in the world today. It's a pleasure to have you. And Dan Hicks is Professor of Contemporary Archaeology in the School of Archaeology, Oxford University. He is also Curator of World Archaeology at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford and is the author of The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution, which is out in paperback with a new preface on the 20th of October. So do look out for it. And welcome, Dan. It's good to have you here. Hello, everyone. Really lovely to be here. Thanks. Okay, so let's start with talking about the new norms that are being articulated in favor of the return of colonial loot. Now, we know that international law operates on a loose intertemporal rule, which demands that the lawfulness of past takings should be judged by the law and predominantly European law, which was applicable at the time. This means that however forcible or violent the takings may have been, they may have been legal just because the law at the time did not specifically prohibit such actions. And this intertemporal rule is complemented by domestic legislation in several European states, which blocked the accession from public collections. But what does it mean to focus on this initial moment of taking? Dan, if we could start with you. Of course, yes, uh, really happy to. And I think, you know, that idea that you introduced the moment of the original moment of taking is actually maybe in some ways the uh, the point at which to start because there is an argument that we hear from especially North American institutions or institutions that have acquired objects 
at auction, entirely legally, as it were, in terms of the most recent acquisition. But these are these are African objects or these are indigenous objects which were taken again without um, sort of consent and sometimes with violence. So the first question is how long, how many times does an object have to change hands in between the uh, the Euro-American art market or the museums for it no longer to be stolen. That then is not so much a legal question as a question of the ongoing evolution of the ethics of curatorship in our museums, but it's also about whose laws are we talking about. There are many forms of law, as anthropologists of law know, that are not subject to the conventional ideas of Roman law, ideas over written law. There are legal frameworks, or we can, you know, what we can call legal frameworks, which are about inalienability in a whole host of different ways, which are linked into object role in terms of sovereignty, in terms of you know, sacred sort of meaning. So we have really, as anthropologists, to understand that range of different notions of what's okay, of what's sort of legal, whose legal uh, sort of systems are we talking about? But we also, I think, have absolutely, as you say, to be aware of how not only anthropology museums, but also a host of other you know, cultural forms and cultural institutions, whether that's statues on the streets or whether that's displays inside a museum that have been weaponized, that have, in some cases, of course, at the Pitt Rivers Museum, as I say in the book, the foundation of that museum originally was a museum of uh, weapons, literally the weapons taken from Africans, from indigenous people from around the world who were defeated by the, the armies of the British and were kept in a museum in order to try and ensure that the next attack, they were aware of what weapons might be used against the British. But over time, alongside those weapons, other objects came. So that's what we're dealing with, really, that kind of recognition in our sector that things that, of course, we value so much, art and culture, can sometimes themselves represent ongoing acts of violence and the museum can operate sometimes to make that violence last. The point that you make about thinking about legal systems as multiplicities and not thinking about the European uh, legal system as the legal system that sort of defines the rules that are then universally applicable is a really important one. And we've seen recently that in part as a response to the frustrations of that, to the frustrations of things like the intertemporal rule and of the fact that European law has a very particular understanding of European pasts, there has been an impetus to sort of set aside the law altogether, to set aside legal constraints in thinking about the future of artifacts. So, for example, uh, in a, a few years ago, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, had commissioned a report on the restitution of African cultural heritage, and this report, authored by Felvin Saar and Benedict Savoy, had called for requests for return of objects to be dealt with through a new paradigm of relational ethics, replacing uh, you know, the sort of paradigm of European law, and in fact had suggested that what needs to change is the law to accommodate this paradigm of relational ethics. Chika, I wonder if we could bring you in at this point to ask you what you made of the Saar Savoy suggestion of putting discussions around return on the footing of relational ethics rather than law? Sure. I don't see uh, a bifurcation um, 
you know, that you have ethics on the one hand and the law on the other, and you might move in one direction and less in the other direction. I think you need both, right? To begin with, the very idea of relational ethics, I think the key word there is relational. In other words, you have to have two parties who are agreed on even entering any relation uh, that will be guided by ethics, right? That's my understanding uh, of what um, uh, they mean by relational ethics. You cannot practice relational ethics when one party is not interested, right? Uh, so if that were to be the case, what do you do? I think that's where you have to also look at the law um, and put pressures on even the laws such as they are. By which I mean that oftentimes there's this uh, recurse to the laws that were made by European powers, right? Without consultation with the victim cultures uh, out of which they expropriated these objects during empire. Uh, colonized peoples were not party to any laws that were made during empire. Right. And so for European states in the present to and institutions to invoke laws that they made for themselves at the expense of the rest of the world as the basis for continuing to keep the loot of empire is basically to say, well, we have, as we say uh, in my culture, we have the yam and we have the knife. Right. Uh, to decide who gets what. So this is really the problem. And therefore, we have to put pressure on the question of the ethics, which will only happen if you have a voice, to in fact question the ethical basis of the laws on which these uh, colonial loots uh, were initially uh, expropriated and continue to be kept in these institutions. And this is where some of the recent voices that have been um, all over the world putting pressure on both political and non-political institutions to begin to question, to begin to look at even the law. So if you think about the so-called inalienability laws you have in Europe, well, the report, I think, played a huge role in the recent attempts to tinker around the law in order to make it possible for some objects to return to Benin Republic and, and to Senegal, right? Which is to say that, well, it also happens that laws can change because laws are written by human beings. And so if you push on the relational ethics side, in other words, to call them out for the continuing violence of colonial era laws and the impact that they continue to have in the present, perhaps you get to a point where they can uh, be forced to rethink these laws. Evelyn, could we talk about this with you for a few minutes? We know that international treaties have developed in the direction of prohibiting new, appropri new appropriations of cultural heritage. We also know that 
once we start looking into it, many past takings were not in fact lawful by the norms of the era once we move away from looking at the norms from a purely European lens. But is it arguable that some of these new developments around return and new ways of thinking both about the plurality of legal systems and the temporality of violence that both Chika and Dan have talked about should be and even may be changing or qualifying the intertemporal rule and other dimensions of international law? Uh, yes, I, I certainly think that um, uh, things are changing. And uh, as was mentioned uh, by Dan and Chica also, or Chica mostly, um, the law, you know, is not an absolute given. Sometimes, you know, we present it like that and it's it's absolute. And uh, But what laws are we talking about? Also, this was mentioned, but that's a very important point, I think. Uh, but maybe I also could make... First, the point that I think the moment, the, the danger in, in, in framing these claims as merely moral in nature, you know, we do it, in, it's an ethical, no, there are no legal norms, but there are all these ethical norms and, it's, and we're really moral, you know, we're highly moral and now we give it back to you, is that you deny justice here, you deny people uh, access to justice. And I think also with my experience in the field of Nazi Lourdes art, that that's not sustainable at all. Because in the end, it's a matter of, you know, it's, it's the matter of power politics, who's the strongest, uh, and the willingness of the owners in the end. And what's so important, I think, about this issue is that we have to see it as a matter of justice. And so it's up to lawyers to make a framework, I think. But... Uh, going back now also to, to the development of new norms, I also just want to go back to the fact that, uh, you know, uh, if you're talking about what law was there, it was also mentioned. I mean, it was, we sometimes pretend there was no law in Africa. And yes, uh, uh, there are this, this, this whole issue of colonial looting. Of course, you must make categories in it. Not all cases are so clear as the Benin bronzes, but if we go to the Benin bronzes, and cases that are similar because at the end of the 19th century, of course, there were many such um, punitive colonial military actions. At that time, there were norms there. It's not like uh, yesterday we, we started to think of, you know, or, or even the UNESCO treaties of 1954 or 1970. These were not the first norms. These norms are very old. Um, as a Dutch, of course, I should mention Hugo Grotius that already... Uh, made an exception for uh, monuments and, and works of art. And he refers to Polybius and to Cicero. And now I'm only talking about the European uh, outlook. And But these rules were all over the world. Uh, uh, um, works of art and monuments uh, have a kind of special, are special, have a special category. And the most important ones are inalienable everywhere. It was like that. And because of that, there were international law rules from the very beginning. Already in 1815, there was a, uh, well, a, a verdict in, in the US Anglo war uh, where the, the judge said, no, it's a matter of international law that um, works of art cannot be uh, seized during wars. And this was confirmed in the Treaty of Paris in, after the Napoleonic Wars, and this was considered a principle of justice. So return of dispersed cultural objects on the basis of territoriality and identification. So I, I disagree with the, uh, the general uh, notion that there are no norms or there were no laws. The question is whose laws you 
and and then we go back we tend to go back to ownership law in the country where these works are now but that i think that's a bit my point i think ownership law is different per country and uh, uh, hugely different. For example, in the United States, uh, claims to looted art are much more, you have much bigger chances of getting your rights than in my own country, the Netherlands, where we have a civil law system, where a new, after a certain moment of time, the new possessor will gain ownership. So, you know, that's, that's not, maybe that's not the right framework to set or to look these things up. So, uh, and I, I, I think that you have to look at identity and heritage values. This was also mentioned. And there you can, uh, you can see that in heritage law and in human rights law, uh, there is a uh, humanization of international cultural heritage law, where there is more focus on the social context of cultural objects. And um, in that respect, for example, you see, uh, well, I think always the UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, is a very clear example uh, where um, the right to culture as a base is the base. It's, it's considered to, the implementation, actually, of the right to culture for indigenous peoples. And what does the UNDRIP say? The UNDRIP says that indigenous peoples are entitled to either return or repatriation or control. It's, it's, it's uh, not a, a matter of return of ownership. It's a matter of de depending on the heritage values involved. For example, when there are objects where human remains are, um, uh, are included, there's a straightforward right to repatriation. When it's about sacred objects, there's a right to control. And, but anyhow, the, the um, states are under the obligation that signed the UNDRIP and is universally signed and it's considered by some customary status. But anyhow, it has a very strong status um, that states are uh, obliged to, uh, to develop procedures in conjunction, conjunction with indigenous peoples. So what I find here interesting is also that you go to the uh, not to the interstate level so much, which I think is problematic in this whole uh, debate, uh, but you go to the human rights framework and there you have communities and individuals and you talk about heritage values. And I think, yeah, I think that what we see, uh, the development of, of, of norms and frameworks and, and soft law is surely uh, a sign of evolving law. It's clear already that there's uh, a great deal more to unravel in this tapestry of law, and which body of law we're talking about, which legal framework. Uh, I think we can come back to that. But for the moment, I just want to stay with these arguments, these broader arguments about uh, return. And we can take the Benin bronzes on which um, Dan and Chika and you, Evelyn, have all spoken as a way of beginning this. So putting aside the legal arguments, some would say that there are good arguments why even looted artefacts like the Benin bronzes should stay where they are. They're better protected, for example, in Western institutions, and Western institutions have the capacity to serve as so-called universal museums. Um, through their visiting or lending or digital technologies, they can ensure that these objects get presented to, explained to global audiences. And I just wondered uh, what you made of these and other arguments. Chika, would you like to start here? 
I will start by saying that there's nothing universal about the so-called universal museums. If anything, it's only because they are keeping the world's loot. That's what guarantees their claims to universality. Um, The other thing is that they are owned by nations, cities, and a group of rich people. So it's either they are national museums and they are governed by nation-based laws, or they are municipal museums, or they are private museums, right? There's nothing uh, universal about them. Otherwise, they would be um, run according to something like the UN you know, law or something, if they are to be universal museums. Uh, and the reason that these claims about universality uh, sound so uh, crazy to me um, is that it's nothing but what I would think of as, uh, you know, residual colonial or imperial mentality. Um, when the directors of museums came together in 2002 to defend the so-called universal museums, um, you know, their right to keep the world's heritage, um, these were the last children of empire, that generation of museum directors, right? Uh, I don't see any self-respecting uh, museum director who would make such a claim today. Uh, and I underline self-respecting um, because we now know that uh, these are institutions that cater to very specific um, uh, audiences. Uh, it would be crazy for a Nigerian to go to the U.S. Embassy and say to them, oh, I want to go to the Met uh, to see artworks, and so could you give me a visa? Uh, They will think you've gone crazy, right? So the idea that they are keeping these things for the rest of the world to come, and who is the rest of the world? It's only those who have the right passports of the North Atlantic. Um, And so these are institutions uh, owned by the West, determined, uh, by the West in terms of what they do. Uh, there is no consideration of the interests of the rest of the world in terms of the business of these museums. And so I have to insist that these are not universal museums and they cannot reasonably, at least in this day and age, make such claims. Now, if you think about the specific arguments that have been made, in terms of we can keep them better than everybody else. Um, I'm not sure where they are looking these days, right, in terms of where museums are being built. If you go to the Gulf, if you're talking about well-resourced museums, they are no longer in the West, right? You have to go to the Gulf to see the best built and maintained museums today. So should we ship all these objects to to the Gulf now because they can keep them and they have fabulous museums designed by the best architects in the world? 
and now you have museums rising up around the African continent. So that argument makes no sense anymore. Take the digital technology argument. Oh, we can now digitize these objects and circulate them to anyone who needs them. Let's even assume that everyone in the world has very good internet technology and resources to access these digital files. Let's assume that. If that is the case, well, let the British Museum return all the binning objects and keep the digital files. Right, if digital files are replacement for objects, then they might as well just do that and not feel too bad about returning or repatriating the objects. We forget that no matter how much we want to pretend that these are valuable objects in every sense of the word, right? That they are money, they are financial instruments that some of these institutions use to evaluate their assets holding, and therefore can help them get loans if they need to do um, uh, business, right? So there's all of these elements that no one wants to talk about, that they are hoarding vast property that, that cost a lot of money and that they have used as part of their asset holdings. So to return to this idea that we can keep them better than everybody else. Um, we can dis, uh, disperse them through digital technology or that um, you know, we have the right to keep the world's heritage. None of that makes sense to me in this day and age. Thanks, Chika. Dan, could you come in here maybe from the curatorial perspective and pick up your response to some of these arguments? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what we've just heard from, uh, uh, you know, from Chica is, you know, all of the key points have been made there amazingly eloquently. Uh, as he has said, it is human beings that make law. And here in the UK, the law has been uh, changed in the case of uh, Nazi loot from the Holocaust and obviously the very different historical circumstances there. But the same legal restrictions have been overcome with a change to the law. And the restitution of the ancestral human remains of, of indigenous uh, people is exactly the same as uh, Nazi loot, a normal part of the professional practice of those of us like me who work in the European or American institutions that hold these objects. So what are we really talking about here? We're talking about the notion of the universal absolutely, you know, invented, not only <laughs> sort of defended, invented in 2002. The application of this universalist model onto the museum in the, uh, the declaration signed by actually a tiny number of uh, national museums. I think I'm right in saying only the, the sort of UK and the German uh, signatories were national museums. These were largely North American art museums with some of the European art museums added in, who made the claim for universality. And here I think what we saw was a resurrection not as they claimed of, an, of a set of enlightenment values, but of what we learn from writings uh, by people such as, uh, as Sylvia Winter and others of the universal humanism 
that came about at the height of empire in the middle of the 19th century. So what Sylvia Winter calls the monohumanism, a certain genre of the human that came about after the movements for abolition and emancipation that talked about a common humanity, but that humanity was based on a very narrow uh, template of the human, which of course was uh, white and was male. In terms of those legal restrictions, so we've underlined how the universalist model was sort of resurrected and reinvented in a neo-colonial way. So many of these legal restrictions, as we learn from the Benedict Savoir book, which is called Africa's Kampf um seine Kunst, Africa's Struggle for Her Art, which was out a little earlier this year, and I hope there will be an English translation coming in 2022, she points out absolutely shockingly how from the year of Africa in 1960, when 19 African nations got independence, sort of onwards, the curators and the directors of, of institutions in the UK, in France, in Germany and elsewhere, actively got together to try to invent myths and laws, which were reasons and arguments against what was going to happen. Well, the, this, this was the claim for the returns of objects, which is so important for national identity, for cultural identity, for traditional religious belief, for sovereignty, for culture. These were so important, but how can we argue against that, them? And these, so all these myths about, you know, we hear that if you return objects, uh, things will be destroyed in, in war. We hear that if you return objects, um, things will be sold. They won't be looked after properly. Well, as my book and others have sort of shown, actually, each of those is what's going on in our European institutions. At the, at the moment, if we take simply the example of the Benin Bronzes, we can't even you know, offer an exact number for how many of the items that were taken in the attack of 1897 are here in the UK. Less than half of those objects that were taken are in the National Museum. Many are in the local authority museums, the regional museums, which have no legal restriction to returns. But we, how can we say we're caring for African objects when so many of them, are, actually, we don't even know what we have? So the Sarsavoir report underlined, you know, and we can argue about this as a figure, but it made the case that over 90% of African heritage is actually not on the continent of Africa in terms of sub-Saharan Africa, it's in Europe. Well, I can offer a far more shocking or even more shocking number, which is that less, less than 1% and even almost certainly less than 0.1% of those African objects that were taken under empire that found their way into museums in the UK are on display. The vast, vast majority are hidden away in the stores. They're often in, in boxes that haven't been opened for 100 years. This is the reality, is that we, how can we say we're caring for them? So we're not caring for them. We've got examples of the British Museum having sold Benin bronzes itself in the 50s, in the 70s. Uh, we've had whole museums like the second of the Pitt Rivers Museums. Every object in this unique ethnological collection sold off, you know, as recently as the 1960s and 1970s. So I think for the lawyers listening, 
you know, what I as a curator need more than anything is for you to tell us more about taught, about hurt. This is obviously a trespass on sort of chattels. It's obviously about the wrongful detention of goods. But how can we also think about museums as an ongoing assault? Looting, we know, is a military tactic. Uh, tactic. How can we get these arguments over consent, over ongoing violence, over negligence, as I've just said, over a lack of care in the present? How can we get the arguments over reparation to line up with arguments in terms of tort that would demand compensation? How can we recognize the digital examples we heard about a moment ago from Chica as being about the taking of intellectual property? How can we understand the display of these objects and the paying of the visitor for a ticket or the selling of objects in the, in the shop, in the museum, as ongoing economic loss? How, in the case of objects that do not simply represent ancestors, but in many cases constitute ancestors, so this distinction in between human and cultural remains is a very false one, how can we talk about tort in terms of the false imprisonment of ancestors? That's what we need from our lawyer colleagues, is to help us find anthropology and law coming together to make these arguments and to make them stick. Thank you. I can only echo uh, Dan's call to all our lawyer colleagues listening in to actually please do respond to this invitation because it's absolutely fundamental. It's very, very important. Perhaps we could now then focus on what this notion of return itself involves. So Evelyn, may we start with you? Could you talk with us about what are the legal forms that return takes when return is agreed on? Yes, thank you. I mean, uh, it's um, look the uh, the returns. Of course, it, it's it's evolving now. So uh, we have examples here in Europe. Um, let me also just say that I think the uh, to to pick up on 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 Dan and Chica also focus should not only be on a return. Huh? I think also also in a legal framework, for example, uh, uh, focus should be on telling the story, uh, reparations in form of uh, how are objects represented and how can museums redefine themselves. Those museums that will not last probably in their present shape, but how can they become a center of communication dialogue? Uh, and can that be, for example, through provenance research? I've seen a very interesting uh, projects going on. Actually, this was in, in Germany, but where, you know, on that level where, uh, where uh, curators and researchers for their information on the objects needs the information from the communities and then from that dialogue you know if it's about return or not yes in certain cases that will be return in some other cases people maybe not also uh, search return but to tell the right stories i mean that that also should be part of that dialogue but you want to know from me more about returns and how they how they're, how they're shaped again i think we come back to this 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 point is ownership the only thing and is it the best framework to frame so is it about return of ownership yes sometimes it is of course but um but sometimes uh, that is very problematic and you see for example uh in france in 2011 there were of course cases of return in the past there were uh, 
uh, ad hoc decisions. There was a case where uh, 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 of a return in 2011 to Korea, South Korea, of scriptures, and that was the solution there was found against, you know, to, to, to circumvent this inalignability of uh, French collections to send it on an everlasting loan. So it's a 30-year loan, and then that w in the understanding that will be renewed. So here again comes in my point, you know, who cares about ownership if the object is under control somewhere if it's physically in the place where it, it, it is in the best place, so in this case in Korea, in another case, uh, maybe the physical place where it is doesn't even matter much, or, or for example, you have to, in, 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 in New Zealand, there is the, uh, the museum there, they, they have a, 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 the management are Maori and Maori, and they have, they have certain ways of uh, displaying the objects, but they were certain objects, you know, it, that can be a solution as well. Um, yeah, in the, in the field of Nazi looted art, again, I think my, my, uh, my uh, understanding is that the rule is not about a, a restitution of full ownership. It's about finding equitable solutions. So what you see very often in that field, of course, are financial settlements. And, you know, because sometimes also I think we have to accept that certain objects do not have one absolute owner. So I think actually there are two discussions uh, that are intertwined and or and, and sometimes it's good to to separate them on the one hand reparations for past injustices and uh, solutions for that and on the other hand the legal status of cultural objects and there i think if you if you separate that you can also say because then i can say you know you can say the universal museum that's that's declaration of course is is you cannot think that that was only 2002, that still, that was an argument made. But of course, behind that is the idea of cultural diversity. It's abused in that uh, declaration, I think. But on itself, cultural diversity is not a bad thing. And, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if it's a good uh, aim that all the works of art should return to their uh, original creators or something that, or there you have to make categories and you have to, uh, to, to separate discussions. So much work to do, I think, for, for all of us. Chika, could we come to you on this and talk to you about what's at stake in this gesture of return? So what happens, um, and Evelyn gave us some examples about objects that may have already been torn out of their original matrix of meanings uh, from situations, uh, what happens in situations where a particular community has been subsumed under not just one, but several post-colonial states uh, has been fragmented into you know different polities? Yes, definitely we are entering a very complex uh, zone here, uh, but which is not to say that, uh, you know, we should raise our hands in or arms in despair and say, well, let's not talk about this or let's not even get to this because it's so complex, <laughs> right? Um, I, I think that the, the place to start is really from, uh, on the one hand, uh, with the support of the law, but also with some dose of good faith, right? Because I think that the whole idea of the relational ethics 
is based on good faith gestures, right, on the parties involved. And it is only within that context that you can actually begin to broach the complexity of these questions that face um, issues about return, right? Uh, yes, indeed, the nation states that you have in Africa today and in you know many other places were invented, right, um, uh, during the age of empire. Uh, well, could we say, well, since these nations weren't really natural, they were invented by Europe, then they have no basis for making claims to national patrimony or heritage, right? So we have to really look at what we have um, uh, today, how history has moved and uh, experiences of peoples have evolved and changed over time. In the case of Benin, for instance, it is very clear, right, uh, that the current Obar of Benin is the great-great-grandson of the king from whom these things were expropriated. And he still lives in his palace, still uh, does his business as the Obar of Benin. And... Of course, they have since created alternative objects that are still part of the life and culture of both the palace and the Edo people, right? And so the reincorporation of objects such as the Benin uh, bronze, I don't see any complication um, around that, except, of course, that especially in the sense it became, um, well, clear that Benin objects are going to be returned, especially from Germany. Then you started having all these other debates, or should they be returned to Nigerian government or the state government or the Oba of Benin? These are discussions that the Nigerians need to have on their own. It's no business of, you know, the European countries to start one or so. Who should we return them to? The Nigerians will sort themselves out. Right, and it will be clear who the object should be returned to. If you're dealing with national parties, uh, well, Nigeria will talk to the Nigerian government. If you're talking about national objects from a national museum, there's a national museum in Nigeria, right? Um, who can act as um, a mediator in terms of discussions around these questions. But it is the problem of the Nigerians to decide who and where to send things to. I, I think that there are there's a space for these negotiations on the part of, in, in my sphere of interest, on the part of the Africans. What I find is ingenious is um, uh, argument about, well, we don't know who to return these objects to. So um, until, and I would always say, so if the Nigerians came to you today and say, we've resolved that, please send it back next in the next six months, will they be then returned? I am not sure about that. So what it suggests is that um, you cannot underestimate the imagination of someone who doesn't want to return a looted object, right? Um, and so the efforts now to build new museums on the African continent, 
um, some of which have a primary mandate of serving as host institutions for repatriated objects. Well, they're doing their own part, right? There on the continent. The question is, will that then convince the European and American institutions to now, quote unquote, have the confidence to return the objects because they'll be taken care of uh, in those places? Well, it's their uh, question to answer. So my uh, point really is that on questions of return and what happens on the African continent, if the Europeans are terribly concerned about that, well, I'm sure they can do something in terms of supporting the establishment of proper spaces and institutions, in, you know, help to train uh, the curators there, help to train the manpower, provide some resources to help them establish and run these institutions because, in fact, they have benefited tremendously over the past several decades from these objects. So they wouldn't be doing them merely a favor. They would just be returning some of the value that they had, accru that had accrued to them by keeping these objects um, over many decades. Dan, can we bring you in here to tell us a little bit more about the role of European museums then in sort of setting up this process of return and dealing with some of these questions? Yes, absolutely, of course. So, yeah, I mean, I think as we've heard from Chica a moment ago, uh, you know, this is, this is a very, very critical moment. So many of the old arguments against return that have been put out as tactics by the richest and most and, and, and the most powerful institutions in this area have simply run out of road. Um, and we're aware that this is, you know, just to return to something that was raised earlier, you know, that nobody in this space is talking about every object in every museum being returned to some putative original location. This isn't an attack upon museums. It isn't about emptying out museums. It isn't about shutting down yeah, museums. It also isn't, as we just heard, simply about the nation state or about the formerly colonizing nation state's relationship with the formerly colonized nation state. There are many non-state actors in these conversations, including, for example, the Royal Court of Benin, but also including, for example, the, uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum and scores of other institutions that hold African art. Actually, a lot of these are uh, universities. You know, I would encourage everyone listening to this to ask yourself, how near are you right this moment from a looted African object, which is subject to a request for its return. You know, these objects are all over the place because this scale of cultural dispossession was so significant. How we work in the present fundamentally is exactly as we just uh, heard. I, I, I have to underline my entire agreement with what we heard from uh, Chica a moment ago, that the sheer arrogance that we feel that our sense of the legal rights and wrongs here would mean, you know, that sort of Western institutions would wait until any competing claims 
within Nigeria or elsewhere were resolved before objects were returned. So much of what was taken was knowledge. So much of what was taken is actually sitting there in the museums to work out the detail. For example, the many objects that were taken in the attack of 1897 that were taken from far outside of the Benin Kingdom itself, that were objects that actually would not be subject to a desire for return to the, to, you know, to the Oba. So there, it's a case-by-case -case approach to objects. It's a case-by-case -case approach, though, that there's no reason why that work cannot be undertaken by African colleagues. I think in 2022, and in what I have described as the 2020s as a, a decade of returns, we're seeing a different set of relationships uh, you know, to truth-telling and to social justice and to remembrance and to reparations. And so this isn't about the fetishization of the physical returns, but returns remain the sine qua known of this moment of social justice. For those in my position, the white curators that are part of the patriarchal, colonial inheritance that are at the heart of this, our job is to seed power. It's to seed knowledge. It's the restitution of knowledge, as we've called it in the, uh, the title of one of the projects, that we're running at the moment at the Pitt Rivers. As we move, as we as advances are made for the Benin uh, bronzes and attention falls upon so many other military expeditions where objects were taken, the many situations of ethnographic collecting, archaeological collecting, even purchase of objects that were things that could never be sold. One thing we'll have to do is to lower our standards of evidence. We're never going to have an incident that is sort of better documented than the, than the Benin bronzes, and it's been hard to return them. So we are going to have to to alter what we how we think about evidence. Fundamentally, we can learn though more generally from this ongoing anti-racist campaign that we're seeing in the civil rights movement. And I think I'd like to I think a a, a point for me to finish on would be to think about the words of the Minnesota Attorney General in April 2021, when he was speaking about the verdict on the racist murder of, of uh, George Floyd. So on the 20th of April 2021, uh, Attorney Ellison said, I would not call today's verdict justice because justice implies true restoration, but it is accountability. And accountability is the first step towards anything that looks like uh, justice. So for us in the curatorial world, that accountability starts with transparency. Our role, those, those in my role, and arguably those in the legal professions, the, you know, those who are listening here, is to think about how we can do that thing of sharing and opening up knowledge of what's in the collection so the demands for returns can be made when that is what is desired, but fundamentally also amplifying and listening to the voices of those asking for returns and for wider processes over restoration, reparation, and also remembrance. So let me just say, Dan, Chika and Evelyn, thank you very much for joining us. We really valued your insights and we trust that all those listening lawyers or not will too.